0: From Harvard University's Graduate School of Design, this is Talking Practice, a series asking renowned designers to provide an inside glimpse into what they do, why, and how they do it, exposing the ways in which their design imagination is articulated through practice. I'm Grace Law, professor of architecture and chair of the Practice Platform. Thank you for listening. Today, we're really delighted to have Shohei Shigematsu with us. Shohei Shigematsu is a partner at OMA and the director of the New York office. Sho has completed a number of cultural projects, including Millstein Hall for Cornell University, extension for the Quebec National Art Museum, FENA Forum in Miami Beach, and the Costume Institute Exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He is currently designing an extension to the Albright-Knox Art Gallery, a new campus for Facebook, and was recently commissioned for the new addition to the new museum in New York City, which was just announced yesterday. So congratulations on that very significant commission. So I have a series of questions to ask you basically involving kind of personal questions because we would love to know a little bit more about you. And it's something that is not readily available in terms of different kinds of publications. So I would love to ask you those kinds of biographical questions, but then also to talk more specifically about the practice that you are developing at OMA. Sure. First of all, we would love to know what did you do before you joined OMA? Hmm. How did you come to all of this?
1: Yeah. Maybe I should go back really to my youth because I grew up in a city called Kurume, which is not a big city in Fukuoka Prefecture, basically in the south of Japan. But luckily, my father had the exchange program to teach at MIT because he was a professor in Japan. So I actually grew up partially in Boston when I I was like 10 years old, uh, four year and a half or so but it left a big impact to me yeah. because in a very Japanese suburban environment to much more like Western and also in MIT as you know like a lot of significant architecture right and that was my first encounter to a real you know Western architecture and I think it left a lot of inspiration on me and then I decided to uh, go to architecture school in Japan for undergrad where I met the teacher, Mr. Suehiro, who was the one of the first graduate of Berlache Institute. Mm. That was a new postgraduate school. Right, that their was program med- was... Yeah. Yes. And he just came back from Holland after working at Hermann Herzberger office, and then came back to my school to teach. And then, you know, I was very fascinated to do my thesis with him and my thesis was about the Dutch social housing. So I went to Holland to do my research. And then, you know, I also visited Berlage Institute, and I thought it was a kind of interesting environment to study because, you know, I thought about going to US because, you know, I, as I said, I grew up here partially, or uk but i thought at that moment i'm the second baby boomer and a lot of people are going outside and i thought it will become another competition if i go to a you know usual suspects right not that i could have qualified to go to Harvard. i didn't even try but i thought instinctively going to holland is you know not very interesting yeah Yeah, unusual unusual so I decided to go there, and after a year, I applied to OMA, and then uh, I basically was hired. And luckily, at that time, there was no Japanese person in the office. It was a transitional moment for OMA. Right. So what year was that? That was '98.
0: 1998, okay. Yeah. So after you were at the Berlage, then you joined OMA 1998, yeah. and you were in the office there in the Netherlands for some years?
1: Yeah, for 10 years. Okay. Yeah. So that was a really interesting moment because, ironically, that was the moment that REM was very much appreciated in the U.S. market. So all the projects were more or less uh, American projects, and my first project was the phase of Universal Studio Headquarters in L.A., And at that time, you know, he just won IIT, the student center, etc. So it was a kind of interesting moment where I entered to Dutch office, but more or less, you know, all the projects were in In the U.S.
0: Now, at that time also, there was only the single office. Hmm. Uh, So that predates the multiple offices that are existing now.
1: Yes, it was only about like 40 people, maybe. It's also that time, but only one color printer, inkjet (laughs) printer. Uh, we had to share one computer for internet for everyone. Can you, can you th- <laughs> it was kind of funny if you think of it now, but uh, you know, a lot of ambitious people in the office, as right. you know, now they are actually competing uh, right. or doing much better than we do. So it was a kind of interesting moment. Also, there are a lot of GSD students because already uh, Rem had taught. Here there. at the GSD, yeah. that's
0: right. So thinking about that, because in 1995 at the GSD, I graduated right. and at that time we had only May lines right. on our desks. Mm. There were no computers. Actually the following year students were asked to bring mm. computers. You know, that's an interesting moment because, mm. you know, it was really a very as you say, a transitional, very specific moment in time.
1: Yeah. Also like Bilbao is about ninety six. Yeah. And yeah. SML XL was about ninety six. Or five. It was interesting because maybe I forgot to mention, but I interned at Toyo Ito's office before I left to Holland because I had some time before I left and it was really interesting moment that Ito was giving a speech in the morning to the staff saying, please read SML Excel very, very carefully basically I. encouraging everyone to, to table- have it right. so within a week everyone had sml excel every staff of toyota's office had sml excel on their desk and i was actually working on sendai media Tech dd phase i was building tube, model, the tube models the yep. tube mm-hmm. models and it was like very neurotic typical japanese Every member has a different diameter. So I had to start from a wooden stick and then roll the paper to become a perfect uh, Tube. tube diameter. But what's great about that building and what sucks for a student who was building the model was that every time you shift one tube or even change a little bit, entire tube of course changes because it's all structural so I had to redo it over and over you got very good at tube rolling yeah yeah, yeah, (laughs) it was like I was a professional roller at the the end so that was a kind of interesting moment 96 to 98 and yeah i also got to know american project then
0: right and, yeah. so when you were in ito's office you were thinking already
1: no 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 i could or you didn't
0: imagine well, that at I, mo- that I moment i knew
1: that i was going to holland but i didn't even think i could get into oma so you know, it was very distant to me. Sure, to,
0: sure. Yeah. That's very interesting. But you persisted with that idea. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, and strangely enough, I actually applied to like 10 Dutch offices, sent a letter, but only OMA replied. And I think they had already international work environment. And also Ram had a lot of, you know, good Japanese staff prior to me. So it was lucky yes. that, you know, he liked someone right. uh, from Japan. So...
0: That's very interesting. So then fast forward a bit. Mm -hmm. um, 1998, you started there. Mm -hmm. And one thinks about the practice of OMA, especially because you're producing so many really fascinating built and unbuilt works, Mm -hmm. maybe even some that are unbuilt that are, you know, perhaps most seminal Mm-hmm. In the recognition of the oeuvre of OMA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, tell us a little bit about how, at that moment, your working in relationship with the Remar and how was the office structured?
1: Yeah, it was structured in like there was right hand at that moment was Dan Wood. Mm -hmm. REM, and then the project leaders and so on. Uh, But I really wanted to learn quickly how the thinking works. So I basically told the management that I want to work on a competition. And I knew that's also where you have most intense communication and relationship to REM. Although, of course, it's one of the hardest to do in the office. But I thought that was the fastest way. But first in uh, Universal headquarters, but after that I've done many competitions. But even like a couple of first couple of competitions, I don't think Rem even knew my name. So I had to really work hard or I was just enjoying, but uh, you know, to basically promote myself. And then after a while, I think he got used to dealing with me. So I think the first competition I was recognized by him was when I was doing the Casa de Música competition, but yes, not in, in the Portugal. very beginning yeah, in Portugal. It's Fernando Romero, now office in Mexico called Free. He was leading the competition, but I was... Working closely the, yeah, on that, yeah. yes,
0: that's interesting. So at that time, how much of the work was competitions and how much was it built work? Ah, yeah, b- yeah, were yeah, you yeah. kind that's
1: of... Um, I think they had a lot of built work, like Universal Headquarters right. were built work, IIT, and then the Dutch project, like the, the Rotterdam, it's this kind of shifted mm, box mm-hmm. that was already there. So a lot of projects were supposed to be built, but somehow a lot of projects ended up not being built. Like Universal headquarters after DD was canceled because it was bought by a French company and some other projects. But if I remember now, what's great about Rem is that he really hates mediocre projects. So it's not about winning the competition it's about really creating statement or polemics or some kind of turbulence to architecture now that i'm in kind of his position leading the office it was such a, a amazing kind of braveness in the way that he really pushed you know the schemes to be very radical very interesting and very inspiring so That was also a really good environment that I could be in to really learn how to push the ideas. Right.
0: So tell me a little bit about that because I think definitely when one thinks of the work of OMA, you know, I like the word that you use, turbulence. Mm. I think that aptly describes the kind of spirit of investigation, Mm -hmm. a kind of rigor of it, but, you know, in a certain kind of intensity, but also an attempt to somehow reveal what is not always on the surface. So this idea of turbulence is quite interesting. And can you tell me a little bit more about how you develop that? In other words, are you working through those issues through research first and then the design emerges or maybe describe some of the methodology for it?
1: Yeah, I think there is a fundamental belief that the architecture still has a room to evolve. And I think there is a fundamental, either through a skepticism, through a humor, or through true belief, I think there was a shared excitement and the shared understanding that architecture and a lot of typology can still evolve. And I think that was the premise of the atmosphere, and I think that's how the vehicle worked, I think. Right. right. Um, It it was never about making it work. It was all about inventing something new. That was the premise. And, you know, a lot of people say OMA is all about research and, you know, more rational outcome of architecture. But what's great about REM is that even if the rationale or the narrative is great, if the outcome of the form is too boring or too predictable, we really had to redo it even redo it to the level that you have to rethink the narrative or redo the research. Because I think the aesthetical part of OMA is often misunderstood because, you know, we present very kind of clearly in the lectures. So we come across as if that's the formal investigation is never so deep, but actually that's the part that I enjoy the most. And also that's the part that we all cared. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think that's a kind of interesting balance of the research, but also last bit, the uh, formal investigation is quite intense.
0: That's very interesting because I remember in the early 90s, mm-hmm. again, as a graduate student at the GSD, and mm-hmm. Rem was quite present at that time in terms of his teaching relationships to the GSD, yeah. and uh, I remember a lecture that he delivered at mm-hmm. one time,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you know on the one hand he was being funny but on the other hand it was you know i could see that there was actually some truth to it he said Oh, that client didn't pay for details, so that client doesn't get any details, (laughs) which I thought was interesting because in a way he was describing a particular kind of project whereby the relationship of the fee to what could be produced at that moment, the project afforded the potential to do an incredibly interesting idea. But in terms of, let's say, the kind of finesse of the detail or the material capacity of it, that wasn't the goal. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that has significantly changed over the last decade for sure. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one can see that the office overall seems to have much more technical command over the craft of the building. Yeah. Uh, In addition to the incredible sharpness that we come to expect from the party or the idea.
1: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a give and take, though, because there is a lot of standard detail that we basically repeat. And now that ironically more we built, there is uh, some kind of style that OMA unconsciously or maybe consciously bring into kind of a lot of details. And I think the great thing about how REM was doing before was because we delivered so little buildings, the attention to detail or the specificity of each project was so high. But now I think, yes, we're doing well in doing delivering many projects and the technical capabilities probably higher, much higher. uh, When I entered, though, I think the inspiration that we give to the architecture industry is maybe less. So this is something that I'm really trying to think through a New York office where I regard us as a very young, disruptive arm of OMA where you know, we could maybe bring back some of that kind of slightly naive, but more exciting and inspiring uh, take on architecture.
0: Mm -hmm. So now let's move a little bit towards the New York office because now there are multiple partners and Mm -hmm. in multiple cities. So first of all, tell us a little bit about how that started and...
1: Uh, The partnership started, I don't really know exactly when, but I joined to the partnership 2008, so almost like 10 years. I was going to talk about this later, but uh, you know, OMA and REM had been always spawning young talents outside OMA, so there are so many offices you know. But at some point, because of the caliber of projects or the duration or the interest of the office, we started to focus more on, I guess, talent retention within the office. So not to spawn a star outside OMA, but to create you know, multiple heads within OMA, which I think is an interesting evolution because OMA, as you know, started as a collective from AA school and then somehow became REM's office. But then I think it's going back a little bit to more collective and that's the idea. And it wasn't maybe really working past 10 years so well, but now I have the feeling th- also through uh, running New York office, the uniqueness of each partner's work, but having some level of coherence because we share this style of thinking. Finally, the diversity and the singularity balance, for me, is getting to a very interesting point.
0: That's a very interesting comment because it is very clear that there are some very successful offices that are byproducts Mm -hmm. of OMA. So there must have been a moment, very conscious moment, when you all in the office noticed that, well, actually we do have to focus somehow on the talent retention. Was that a very clear moment for Rem? Or how did that evolve? Because it does seem to be a very specific shift. You know, of course we can name all of them. Mm -hmm. What's also interesting to me is that again, in another conversation that Rem was recorded, he had actually sort of rebuffed the idea mm-hmm. that he was a mentor. Somebody mm-hmm. had asked him, oh my gosh, you mentored all of these mm-hmm. incredible architects. Look at how many interesting, you know, Bjarke mm-hmm. and Vinnie and et cetera. And then, no, I don't exactly remember what Rem said, but it was something to the effect of, well, I have nothing to do with that. I don't take responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a very interesting moment because clearly all of these people had sought him out, sought oh. out the firm, sought oh. out the idea of practicing in a certain way, mm-hmm. but then left. So why were they leaving? Did they feel it was a limited trajectory for them? Also,
1: and you know, it's a very intense environment, environment, Mm. but also, of course, at that moment, at the height of REM's popularity, everyone who is probably most ambitious in the world wanted to work there. So, of course, ambitious and good people always have a goal to have their own office at the end. So it was a natural kind of cycle, I think. Right. Um, so, but Rem, you know, Rem sincerely is annoyed that he has to compete with his ex-OMA people, and he pretends like he didn't give, not mentoring them, but if you really ask individually, how was Vinnie or how was this person, he sometimes describe how they were doing and how the collaboration was with him uh, in a funny way. Yeah, and yeah. Someone has to document this.
0: That I think that is very yeah. interesting. So then at that same moment... At some point, by 2008, how many partners had he taken on at that point, it was promoted like, to that?
1: Yeah, it was maybe five, including Rem, mm-hmm. when I joined, including myself. Now it's nine. So again, a retention strategy, but also, you know, the market has expanded. Of course, we needed more people to cover the world. but that was also maybe a moment where we had certain optimism to global operation and having multiple offices in the world which i think maybe we were a little bit too optimistic now you see a lot of markets fluctuating so it's not so easy to actually create offices with the same rigor of design and same rigor of thinking We are now a little bit reduced, so we closed the Dubai office, for example. It's only New York, Rotterdam, and Hong Kong, which kind of makes sense, but, yeah.
0: Right, yeah, that makes sense. So you running the New York office, how much autonomy do you have? I mean, there's always a question how collaboratively the work is occurring. On the other hand, uh, how much independence the different offices have from the mothership in the Netherlands. Yeah. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. We
1: don't call it a mothership or headquarters anymore. There's a concentration of admin group in support group in Rotterdam. So we still treat Rotterdam office as headquarters, but in essence, it's no longer. Basically, every office and every partner even is cultivating their own work, delivering their work. So the collaboration is not really happening between the partners, rarely. So if I speak of New York office, there are two partners, me and Jason Long, who is from GSD. We both have our own projects, and we basically procure it and deliver, complete it. So there is no involvement of other partners, including REM. Of course, the media wants to always say it's REM, but uh, the truth is that my projects are designed by myself and the team.
0: Right. So you actually do have a, quite a fair amount of autonomy. Um, yeah. In fact, really, you are. You're basically, you are basically yeah, are on your economy. own. Yeah. yeah. And that
1: shift happened when the market was quite bad. I had to really build the new image of OMA. And also, because of the predecessors, New York office was run by Joshua. And because of the scandalous split at the end, I had to really kind of reintroduce OMA. To US market so it took a long time but that also enabled me to really think how we can rebrand or rethink the notion of OMA which was in a way interesting effort because as you know REM is one of the most influential architect in our age but I wasn't going against REM but really always trying to say that we are you know younger part of OMA and we can do things that maybe REM can't and You know, those little by little efforts somehow started to work.
0: So how would you characterize the the distinction of this evolution? Because you are, in a sense, a kind of new generation. Mm -hmm. And maybe one could say that you're taking risks in different ways. So how would you articulate that? How is the office more consciously different than maybe what had begun?
1: Mm -hmm. Hard to say. If I knew that uh, maybe the office goes even better, (laughs) <laughs> uh, but uh,
0: I mean, it seems to me that you're in a very interesting moment because you're someone who had very extensive relationship with REM for mm-hmm. some time. Mm-hmm. In some ways, you have absorbed already so much of the culture right.
1: of that yeah, ethos of that much, work. Maybe too much. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe yeah. not. But what's interesting is that now, as you are developing the New York office, you're bringing up on board. Mm. I'm assuming people that may have never worked with REM. So that does stretch. The Mm -hmm. office in different ways, good and bad, and challenging. And you know, obviously, in every office, when you bring somebody new on board, Mm -hmm. it's challenging, but it can also be very inspiring. And Mm -hmm. you know, in my own office, when we bring someone, we notice change. Did change? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, how are you thinking about?
1: Yeah. So I think because I took over the office in two thousand seven, and right after, as you know, two thousand eight, there was a crisis. So a couple of years, I didn't even have any project other than like Cornell or this kind of museum and it was a very small office and i really had to make the office work so my focus was a little bit about making the office work in a way a little bit sad but uh that was i think if i look back that was coming too much to the forefront of the aim of the office and now it started to work let's say i have a room to really think what we can actually do in architecture like Rem was trying to do to inspire people, inspire ourselves. I guess we really have now started almost, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is a kind of slow progress. But as you know, in US, it was very difficult after 2008. So now finally, after completing some project, and now we're getting some you know, prestigious project, we really want to focus on doing things very well and really think of our identity within OMA, but even outside OMA.
0: You having had the a very full spectrum of different kinds of experiences through OMA, as you imagine the New York office, you know, five years, 10 years out, what do you imagine is the ideal size? And, you know, when mm. you think about it moving forward, how right. do you...
1: We have about 85 people now, so it's quite big already. I think 80 to 100 is the ideal size for me, and I don't want to go beyond that, but you never know. I don't, you know, the great thing how Rem ran the office was also not to make too many plans or, you know, limitations, so I don't know yet, but now I'm only working on American project and Japanese project, but eventually I would like to also work in Europe or, you know, if each partners can start to have their own geography, that's the ideal. So that's how we are thinking. And also, you know, a lot of maybe bookmaking or research cultivation as I was doing at GST about food. You know, those kind of cultivation of our interest is also going to be very important, not just, you know, architecture. I think that was the great success of how REM ran to create a lot of dichotomy within the office and a kind of dialectic relationship between physical and thinking.
0: Yeah, In terms of the project type, I mean, simply because you brought up the GSD and the relationship to food, I'm kind of curious about that because it seems like some of the work that you're pursuing, on the one hand, you have something like the new museum, Mm -hmm. this kind of paradigmatic Mm -hmm. cultural icon kind of condition and Mm -hmm. then you're looking at let's say urban social issues for example food hub in Louisville Mm -hmm. and so this question of the social agenda Mm -hmm. for the New York practice is it conscious for you where do you think it's going
1: I think we want to make it very conscious. So, we are also doing a lot of public space design. So, we're doing this bridge park in DC. We're doing the post Sandy revitalization of Hoboken to create public spaces that is water resistant. And, you know, even Facebook for me is a new campus. It's the first time a tech company is actually making a mixed use district. So, that's also a lot of public space making so for me what I felt during the recession was that you know a lot of landscape architects had grown very much during the recession I felt started to do master plans started to outdo architects and because you know they were very tactical and good about improving things without building architecture which i felt that was a very interesting shift i wanted to be in that position also you know socially i think the public space again is you know with a lot of programming a lot of reuse of infrastructure a lot of shift of you know mobility etc i think it might transform into something very unexpected or interesting so you know anyway that dimension we are also very much consciously focus on. Mm -hmm.
0: I I find that very astute and very interesting because of course the tendency for architects always to be paired with this idea of an object-centric design goal is not necessary that the design in spatial terms can be actually very lateral (laughs) and uh, literally lateral in the sense that it's about space and landscape and territory, infrastructure, and other ways of building the city yeah. that aren't about the object itself. Yeah. Um, well, we
1: love the object, too, still. Yeah, we but all, uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, we but, uh, and we are doing a lot of interesting form, too. But I felt also, you know, going through the Bilbao-Guggenheim effect, you know, I was doing, like, Whitney Extension at the time, very iconic buildings and somehow that period ended I thought we have to diversify our tactics not just always focusing on architectural statement but also looking at non architectural statement as an architect and I think that's of course a little bit inspired by AMO kind of work but also always thinking and challenging and questioning what the role of architect in our age is is and also how the role of architect or architectural thinking can be applied to the social change.
0: Right, right. That, yes, I think that is interesting publications now really grappling with that challenge. Yeah. And I think that architecture is also struggling with this question of this of whether we still maintain a disciplinary core. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we do, what is that disciplinary core? Mm. If it's not the object building, if that's ultimately not the exclusive product of architecture, then what else is it? And then, Mm -hmm. of course, in the realm of education, one wonders then what do we teach our students or how do we continue to stimulate the imagination through design, through architecture, but not necessarily always exclusively about the built object. So it's an interesting challenge. Yeah.
1: And... You know, what I'm always telling students also at GST or in the office is that, you know, the education used to be basically absorbing the knowledge and technical, you know, knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. But I noticed once I started to practice that in any way, you can never be a specialist of hospital or a museum. So each time you have to do profound research. So each time, basically, architecture has to deal with new conditions. That means... It's better to spend your time on brushing up how you can actually absorb new conditions rather than trying to accumulate knowledge that might be outdated quite quickly. So I think that's a kind of also interesting mentality at OMA where every project is of course different and of course we don't repeat the form. So it's always like uh, dealing with a new uh, condition.
0: Right, right. You mentioned very briefly AMO. Yeah. Tell me how that relationship is working and what you see as the collaborative potential yeah. there.
1: I started think that the uh, AMO is never going to be defined <laughs> <laughs> and it just diminishes because that's the kind of whole point. It was like almost like a ghost alter ego of REM who always had certain level of skepticism or worry about architectural profession. Because you know, he came from different background. Right. It's applying architectural thinking to non architectural environment sometimes works, sometimes miserably fails. We thought of making AMO a part of the business, but now we found difficult to make the business consistent. So it's really almost like a symbol of our mentality that we are always thinking that architectural thinking can be applied to many different so conditions.
0: That's fascinating. So AMO is kind of functioning like a spirit animal.
1: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so well, unfortunately, <laughs> we wanted to make it into business, but at this moment, I think AMO is like that. So for me, you know... Is it either staffed either now? Teaching, is it, is it, Yeah, there are a couple of uh, uh, research staffs, but mm-hmm. uh, they're also trained as an architect. So. Right it's in a way like a vehicle to cultivate our own interest and not to forget that uh, thinking should come first before designing and i think that's a very important part of oma's gene and i think that's why there's no formal prescribed outcome or style that's why you know it's a great place to also learn Mm -hmm. You you can learn narrative making and, you know, push the idea and create a lot of interesting research and then you can apply that to your own outcomes. So that's why people manage to use this system quite well and be successful in the market, I think.
0: Yeah. So do you think, though, that ultimately one would continue to nourish AMO? A lot I of mean pe- you, some you, people tried very because seriously. you know you refer to it as a ghost, yeah. which is very interesting, so it can actually disappear. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious.
1: I have a feeling that something like this if you start to formalize oh what is AMO and AMO's expertise, it becomes suddenly very uninteresting, almost like a you know, ad agency or like a consulting firm. So at this moment I feel that this is the right place for AMO.
0: I think a lot of people are curious about that.
1: Yeah, but uh, I welcome anyone who wants to redefine it and kind of use AMO as a vehicle or starting point to push the architectural profession or architectural thinking. Right. That's interesting.
0: So you almost, in that invitation, it can be an open.
1: Yeah. And, very uh, open. Yes, and that's what I mean. I want to create an environment that people can use us as a vehicle to push the ideas, and as a whole, I think, it will leave a great effect. If we come across a very open office and then invite younger, ambitious people to the office.
0: We had talked a little bit about five years out, mm-hmm. ten years out. Mm-hmm. What do you imagine is your kind of dream project? What would you like to do? You know, you have this essentially autonomous office, but of course you can leverage the history that you've been building over years.
1: Yeah. I'm very optimistic and feel lucky where we are in the society because I think a lot of business, a lot of environment is changing very rapidly. And, you know, a lot of people even say it's, it could be compared to Renaissance, how, you know, every industry is challenged and kind of evolving. And with that environment, I would love to create as many new architectural typology or push the typology forward with the evolution of the society. And I want to really contribute to capture the change through architectural thinking or through architecture and to really be able to develop our own zeitgeist. And I'm trying, and I think someone like Biake is doing much better, but really observe the change and capture the change and express the change and mm-hmm. I think that's what I'm focused now and that's would be great if we can do that
0: Why do you think BRK is doing better? Why do you say that? Because in fact actually some would argue that that's
1: the opposite it opposite. Yeah. yeah.
0: So it would be interesting to hear from your yeah. perspective like what makes you think that
1: I think his certain level of optimism in him about the change and to be part of the change and to throw himself into those changes. I think not that the outcome is necessarily expressing that, but the way he is acting within architecture circle, but also outside, for me, is a very interesting role that architecture or architect can play in society and creating more surface areas to deal with different industry or different Mm. domains.
0: Yes, I think there's also still some concern about the kind of notion in which the diagram becomes the built Mm -hmm. expression of the project, and somehow that singular diagram is actually also highly reductive Mm -hmm. rather than being expansive, Mm -hmm. and that the reduction of that diagram is essentially a single narrative, Mm -hmm. and that ultimately it's very anemic.
1: What I like about Björk is that he knows that he's doing that. And also for me, when MVRDV came in acknowledgement, they also had very utopian take on architecture and urban environment and took part of REM's exploration and then pushed that idea forward. And I think Björk is doing similar. And trying to distinguish themselves, but not distinguish themselves to OMA and REM, but of course preserving some kind of what they learned in OMA. So Mm. it goes back to a little bit about the word turbulence. At least BRK is creating turbulence, whether good or bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And I like that Mm -hmm. because it's also, I get excited to see. It's energizing. Yeah. Yeah. It's energizing.
0: How does this. How does the practice of OMA outlive its origin, its mm-hmm. founder? Mm-hmm. Does it continue to expand? Does it contract? If one could develop new offices, would one do that? What do you think happens now at this point? If you're a representative, of, particularly if you're representative of this new generation, mm-hmm. what happens next?
1: I think there are multiple scenarios that I can think of. For example, if Rem retires... Maybe OMA splits into a couple of offices, or OMA remains with smaller partnership, I think. Number nine, maybe too many, or... <laughs> I hope mm-hmm. there will be some kind of rethinking about the organization, not just kind of dry partnership, and we can almost make the organizational issue as a subject matter for us to really tackle. Right. So you, you haven't
0: know. done that yet. Well, we actually d- we haven't. Like
1: a, it, we are trying. That's why the evolution of each partner doing their own cultivation is finally started to work now. Right. Because we were pushed to really make it work that's kind of working so let's see how that multifaceted entity will do but uh, i wouldn't say this is a perfect way of running a a single architectural office mm-hmm. either so and also you know at some point we have to think when rem retires what we're going to do it's a very um, real question yeah it's a question mm-hmm. and that's a big one but i think we're prepared but we still have to think further
0: yeah like OMA, mm-hmm. Pay's office is essentially almost like a New York alumni society <laughs> yeah. because there are That's hundreds true. of architects that have gone through Pay's office. That's true. And then many of them are well-known and started their mm-hmm. own practices. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, Bill Pedersen will talk about that mm-hmm. today. am's sons as well mm-hmm. in the Pay partnership. Yeah. And of course, paycob cob free continues. Yeah. So it's quite interesting. Yeah,
1: and- that's very interesting. And I think that's uh, maybe where OMA is also going to multifaceted means maybe some facet might again depart, but trying to create a kind of multifaceted object as an identity is probably the future. And luckily, we have the name associated single person, so it's easier to do it than if the office had a name of an individual, of course, the rebranding might be more difficult.
0: Right, right. And I think that's also an interesting thing because there's also a point at which, I guess I would conjecture this, and I'm curious to see if it comes up in our conversation tonight, but at a point at which, if there are so many partners, at what moment does that kind of equilibrium create a kind of flattening of the authorship or the voice of the practice? Because it can happen. It's like very delicate balance to keep turbulence alive. Mm -hmm. um, And maybe that's actually not the desire of every partner, Mm -hmm. ultimately. You know, people's own desires will shape practices in different ways. So I think that's also an interesting question.
1: Yeah, well, I thought so too for some time that uh, everyone, every partner has to reach to a certain level. But at this point, you know, design critique is one of the most difficult things to do if you're in an equal position. And that's why I also looked into other ways of introducing critique system to the office. And yeah, you know, explain so, that, yeah, explain that. A lot that. of offices do it, but just bring like external critics, criti- critics to the ah, office. Do
0: you do that regularly?
1: Well, not really yet. Or create a journal within the office so that everyone can see and even give an award within the office. You know, I'm just describing y- yes, the yes, type yes. of effort that other offices are doing to keep the production level high. But you know, there's a really interesting quote from David Childs that said critiquing each other between the partners is very difficult, but critiquing the number is very easy. So in the end, the start of the corporate firm is that people start to measure the success of a partner's work through probably revenue, which we really want to avoid. So going back to the consistency of work, I started to actually feel that each partner should develop whatever they want to do and don't care about the consistency to the level that it almost becomes different offices. And I think that's maybe an interesting <laughs> way of thinking the evolution because the coordination is anyway very difficult. We all have a different talent. We all have different tastes.
0: Yeah, I find that very fascinating yeah. because what that might produce is it accepts and encourages a certain kind of asymmetry. Yeah and angularity which becomes actually not only acceptable but desirous right. and lets each arm become its own authentic voice. I think that could be very yeah, interesting so,
1: to think about it. But still, of course, it has to be right. But I have the feeling that we are doing OK right now on that end. Like Renier de Graaf, who just published a book, he's more focused on you know writing. But also his architecture is very deliberately generic. Not so much formal moves, gimmicks, but I personally like a bit more expressive architecture and, you know, different style mixed. It starts to have almost inconsistency, but I'm enjoying that inconsistency right now and s- want to see how it evolves. But we have a privilege to see each other's process and understand and share technical knowledge or share a contact or share. Client info, etc. So the intelligence is shared, but the outcome is vastly different, and I think that's an interesting model. But I'm just maybe taking it just optimistically. That's all. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, we're, we are all actually very optimistic about <laughs> your practice, and uh, we're just very delighted that you could. Join us today and talk about these things which again this is a format that's new to us, but I think that it will give us an opportunity to glimpse inside a certain kind of box which is always opaque. Yeah. And even though we always hear at the GSD, you know, there's so many lectures every semester, hundreds. And so I think it's
1: No, this is a great initiative because one of the biggest concern of course of a student life is that, you know, this anxiety that what you're learning is it useful in actual practice and I always battled personally with that anxiety and it's true that many of the things directly don't contribute to your practice but it ultimately does but you know knowing is always a power and I think this kind of candid description of how each office practice is working, I'm sure it will take out a lot of boundaries between the student academic and practice.
0: Yes, I think that's right. I think our goal is to sort of demystify some of these issues and you know I think there was a long time where there's a feeling that the gentleman architect, we don't talk about things like money, strategy, marketing, even our practical aspirations and yet at the same time we know how much those very conditions support or deny the potential of certain kinds of projects. Mm. So it's a very vast area that we actually don't discuss because we are obsessed about thinking about, you know, whether it's form or Mm. geometry, et cetera, which are all extremely important, but Mm. there's this territory that really needs more attention.
1: Also, like, we should believe that even... Architectural office could evolve. I'm dealing with like Facebook, all these people who are more into innovations. And I think they're very good at using the data and reflect on their organization. And, you know, architecture a little bit is always stubborn. Yeah, (laughs) stubborn, stagnating, too much belief on what happened in the past. I think we should use this kind of brainstorming to. Even push the idea of architecture office as a practice.
0: Sho, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to hearing your talk tonight with us on the panel.
1: Thank, thank you. you so much.
0: I'm Grace Law, and you've been listening to Talking Practice from the practice platform of Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. Today's episode was produced by Ronnie Serif and edited by Maggie Janik. Research was provided by Alexander Porter. To find out more about programs and events at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, visit us online at gsd.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening.